What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. On the show today, we've got Johnny Hanna. Tell them why we do what we do. Start with why. Tell them who we are, how, we're, how we want to make their lives easier. That's our focus. We want to we simplify life for you as a property manager. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Johnny, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Jess, for the invitation. Okay, so uh, obviously we want to talk about what you've done building Entrada to $100 million in recurring revenue. We want to talk about what you're building now at Homey. Why don't we start there? What's Homey? Um, Homey is a marketplace where buyers and sellers can meet online, negotiate, and transact. So we're removing the middleman completely. So you don't need to pay a real estate agent any fees at all. So we're just automating it 100%. Uh, how's the response been? Um absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I know uh, certainly a lot of people closer to our age get pretty aggravated about how many thousands of dollars they're paying a realtor when it's like, I'm the one that did the Google search. You're just the one who showed you like you accompanied me. Most, most people find the home they end up buying on their own before they even reach out to an agent. But yeah, I, I think our attitude toward realtors agents, I think, you know, they're normally friends or family like we love them. But the amount of money that we end up spending in that transaction, just nobody feels that it's justified. Yeah. So um, tell us about Entrada. Um, Entrada started out as property solutions. This was a business plan competition out of BYU, and we ended up winning that. We won a few other business plans ongoing. That's kind of what funded the company for the first few years. We built apartment management software. So for the big apartment communities, um, we initially started out building them websites to market any vacancies that they had. And we also built a resident portal where residents could pay rent online. Um, eventually that turned into where they could buy renter's insurance online. Uh, they could you know, communicate with the office online. Uh, so from there, we became the biggest in that industry, the multifamily industry in websites and online payment collection. So today we're processing over a billion dollars a month. It's, it's close to two billion actually. Things have really come together well there. But um, from there, we've expanded. We're now doing accounting software. 
So it's, it's the day-to-day enterprise solution that these apartment management companies use. So they manage all of their move-ins, their move-outs. They manage you know everything from A to Z through our software. And, and how many founders were involved in getting that going? You know, we had, there were a group of us to begin. I think there were about five of us to get started. It, it whittled down to three of us. Um, and then I ended up stepping down as president last January, about this time last year. So now there's two founders remaining. And uh, one of those other founders that was with me at the beginning, Mike Trianfo, he's a new co-founder with me at this business, Homie. So we've reconnected. Interesting. So um, thinking about all these uh, years doing the same thing and now doing something different, mm-hmm. what, what do you feel like has been a new experience coming over? Like, uh, obviously, you achieved some, some pretty great milestones at what you were doing. What over here has been something you didn't expect? Um, I, I didn't expect the excitement to be as, as high as it was. Um, you know, I was doing the same thing for about 12 and a half years at Property Solutions, and I loved what I was doing, but getting back into the startup game, like every single day is brand new. And there are so many challenges. We're taking on an industry that's never been disrupted before. Um, nobody's ever removed the real estate agent completely from a transaction. So we realize this is a, a big challenge, but we've put together a great team and yeah, just coming today, coming to the office every day, hearing about people's experience using our software, um, you know, just getting this thing off the ground. That excitement that I had when we started Property Solutions, I had kind of forgotten it a little bit. And so, to me, that that's one of the biggest you know things that's been surprising. Like I really, really enjoy coming to work every single day. That's great. Um, when you think about um, so many people, you know being in startups is like kind of a cool thing these days, you know, the media attention and, um, there, there's a lot of fluff. There's a lot of other stuff going on. And then there are, in my opinion, there are like significantly larger numbers of people subscribing to principles that are working. You know, it does seem like, um, there's almost becoming, um, more methodologies that are reliable where before it was so much of like, throw a dart, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Now it seems like there are more and more principles that people can follow to increase the probability that it will work out. Do you agree with that or not so much? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when we started in 2003, there weren't a lot of other software companies that, that had the success that we ended up having that we could learn from or, or emulate from, at least in technology with the World Wide Web. You know, I mean, it was relatively new. Um, so now, I mean, yeah, you look at the landscape here, especially in Utah, there are so many successful entrepreneurs that we can learn from, and and we are. You know, we're we're connecting to everybody. We're really trying to do a good job networking and um, learning. You know, the team that we have right now, it, we have a team of seasoned professionals. But even with those guys, we're continuing to reach out to try to understand um, and learn more than, than we knew previously. And and these companies exist here, so you know those methodologies I think now exist. And, and Utah's proven itself with all these successful software companies. So, I mean, you, you almost can just replicate what you did before. And, and at Property Solutions, we were, you know, it's now called Entrada. We just rebranded this year. I still struggle going back and forth to Entrada and Property Solutions. But um, Entrada, it's a real estate software company. 
and Homie is a real estate software company. So a lot of the connections I had in that industry have, have now come over here. So in particular, you know, the methodologies we use there, a lot of them now I'm using here. So it, it's, it's been awesome. You know, let's talk about that for a minute. Cause growing up in Canada, okay. You just don't think like Utah tech tech hub, right? Uh, the, the Boston, the, the Silicon Valley comes to mind easily, mm-hmm. but yet, you know, I was on the radio yesterday with a guy who, you know, um, our government had sent him over to Eastern Bloc to teach entrepreneurship to Russians and to uh, Armenians and stuff like this, right when the wall had come down and stuff. And he was choosing across the entire country where he thought like the most up and coming places were. And this was like top three on his list. And, and he made the choice to come here. And I keep, you know, one of my clients, again, from LA. And chose to relocate to Salt Lake and is saying, well, you know, there's that whole buzz, like the whole buzz about what's going on out there. And I'm thinking like buzz about Utah. But uh, being here, like there is like there's, I don't know, feels like there's something in the water kind of thing. Will you talk about what you, I mean, even in just in the 12 and a half years you've been building your business, the how you think the business environment or the startup environment has changed? I mean, there are so many companies that have had success in just the last few years that have, you know, the property solutions, the... Uh, Vivint just took off. You know, they, they've sold their business now. You know, two different businesses for two billion each, something like that. Um, yeah, Qualtrics. Uh, Josh James has now done it twice. You know, Domo and, and Omniture. So it's now like on everyone's radar. Everybody that comes to school here, they're now thinking, look, there's all these successful companies. I just now need to f- have a good idea, find a niche. And you know, there, there's plenty of, of intelligent, hardworking, honest people that you can pull and partner with. Um, I think that that's what's happened. And so, you know, when I left property solutions, I actually didn't join homie right away. I went out into the market and interviewed with several other uh, startups. I judged a few business plans. I I judged BYU's business plan where we came from. So that was kind of coming full circle. Um, and meeting with all of these other tech companies, Utah is set for the next 20, 30 years. I mean, these, these new fresh out of school CEOs, they're good and they have great ideas. They have great teams. They're hungry. They're young. They're energetic. Um, and, and they've seen what others have done and they're also getting that advice from those and, and and they're getting a few of these older entrepreneurs now on the boards of their company to give them that direction and, and be those mentors. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that buzz I think is just going to continue. And, you know, and structure just went public. Um, Nuvi's growing a, you know, like wildfire. They're, they're opening a new office. I mean, uh, Outlet. I love them. They just they just won, um, I think, some product category award at CES down in in Vegas. So it's it's going to continue to be buzzing here in Utah. Very interesting. Um, when you do think about people who maybe are on their first time or or who haven't achieved the level of of success you have so far. And you think about all the advice you got versus the advice that actually panned out, like what, what principles, um, have kind of become your go-to ones or, or what kind of things would you say, you know, separating out, there's so many business books spouting off, well, you have to do this, mm-hmm. right? When you think about what actually worked for you, what are some of the, the principles or the guidelines that you feel like you adhere to or that have worked for you? Yeah. And I, I think all the advice that I've received always was helpful. I mean, my professors, they taught me how to do a pay-per-click back at BYU-Idaho. And that was one of the things that I ended up doing, you know, to help get our website known online. You know, we didn't have that organic search right away. So we had to pay for those, those spots. 
we built websites for apartment communities and got them up. So, I mean, <clears throat> everything I learned from professors or any advice I got from mentors I think was helpful. I think um, the one thing for me that has continued to, uh, I, I think, help me in my career and looking back, I, I think I could have been a, maybe even shared this principle with others better is just caring for other people. Anybody you end up working with, um, it might not be a 10 year long relationship. You know, if you hire an employee, uh, they might get a, a job offer that's more than what you're paying them. Um, but if you have a good relationship with them and help understand their career goals, help them maybe even go to the next job by being a reference for them, they may come back and apply again with you a year or two later. Um, and if not, they might send other people to you because they knew you cared about them. They knew that you had their best interest at heart. And, and I think we're seeing a lot of this. So Aaron Sconard was just recognized as the CEO of the year a couple days ago. And his business is, he built his business on culture before they even found a product. And to me, like we didn't have that cultural focus at the beginning of our company um, we weren't necessarily money hungry. We did. We, we were excited to change an industry, and and change kind of the old software approach to the apartment space. But I think had we had a focus on culture, had we had a focus on really putting our employees first, that could have helped us in, in so many ways in in keeping relationships and in. in uh, you know, maintaining those throughout the years, building a better reputation, a better brand. Um, not that not that we don't have a bad reputation, or not that we have a bad reputation or bad brand, but I think it would have helped propel us so much faster. And I think by doing that, by caring for the individual, you end up getting more loyalty out of that person. And if they're fresh out of school, they might think the grass is greener. Somewhere else they might go experiment with that. But then they're going to realize quickly that the team that you have built, the culture that you created, even if they were making, you know, ten thousand dollars a year less, it was probably worth it, you know, to have stayed. And, and they'll let their peers know that. To me, that's, you know, early on, I didn't really understand that. And I think, as a state, you know, in, in Utah, I think all these companies are now trying to build better cultures. And that's, uh, you know, that's one thing that I, I feel very passionate about. That, that I wish you know, the younger me would have gotten into that better or learned that quicker. And I, I, I'm sure people were trying to teach that to me. And I, I don't know if I just didn't hear it or didn't want to listen or, or what the case was, but somewhere along the line, it clicked. <laughs> sure. Well, thinking about, um, thinking about that specifically, you know, culture is a real buzzword. The last, you know, three years when I was with the management consulting firm, you know, a lot of senior mm -hmm. management, whether mm -hmm. you're a for-profit, non-profit, military. There's a lot of there's a lot of people talking a good game Absolutely. about culture, yeah. and and they have the they do they have the barbecue. And we had our summer barbecue. Our culture's good, okay. Versus, you know, the the Shingo Institute took me over to uh, go tour the like Toyota and Honda plants, and and some of these people really into the lean methodologies and the operational excellence. And some of those guys, like, it's really in the bones. You know, mm -hmm. like the managers like cut their own salaries in order to keep staff mm -hmm. and there's all this mm -hmm. like they had all these great stories mm -hmm. of like we lost seventy percent of our customers in the two thousand eight shutdown and so we had a company decision. Should we let people go or should everybody work less and we'll figure out how to do it? And we decided to keep every single staff member losing seventy percent of our revenue. Mm -hmm. And you're like, What? Um so when you think about uh people who you think are walking the walk, 
when it comes to culture. And like, it's so easy to say, put, you know, really, really put our employees first. Mm-hmm. Right. But then the policies stay the same. You know, mm-hmm. like we added an extra birthday card, but, but it, they just don't feel the love. Any examples of yeah, well, how senior leaders can, can walk the walk? It's funny, you know, you said you did leadership training and, and we didn't even talk about this necessarily before, before getting on uh, the radio here, but we, we, uh, I, I knew you had some passion behind this too. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's easy to fake. It's super easy to fake. It's easy to put up the kumbaya on the wall, but to live it is another thing. You know, and, and I do think there's some sites out there that keep you truthful. Um, Glassdoor, for example, you know, people can post anonymously there. Now you can write fake reviews, and I know people who've done that. Um, it, it's, you know, so I mean, you, you can fake it and get around it, but I think that, um, you know, you can quickly get to know uh, the leaders of a company by talking to the employees and really understanding what's going on there. And, you know, Aaron, won that CEO of the year. And for people who don't know his company. Aaron Sconard, yeah. It's plural site up in Farmington. And I don't know him very well. I, I went and met him. Uh, I don't know. I think his company started around the same time my, my company did at Property Solutions. I met him. We, we talked about culture. That was a big focus of his discussion. And some of the things he said, it really resonated with me and what he did there. But talking to employees that work there is what I've done. And it, he's the real deal. He definitely lives it. And then even at the the award ceremony just two days ago, his you know employees got up and his wife got up and she talked about the balance that he had with his family and and her in particular, um, and and you know how much time he put into work versus spending with the kids and all of that. And it's like he won for the good guys. He just won the good guy award for all of us you know, a couple days ago. And, and I think he's an example for me. I, there's still a lot of things that I could do better following his example. Um, I, I met with a guy this morning, Ryan Westwood of Simplus and you know, he's, he's doing some really cool things too. And I felt, you know, I met him for the first time briefly yesterday and then had about a, a half hour meeting with him this morning. And some of the things that he's doing, you know, his executive meetings are once a week but he lets anybody in the company join those executive meetings so that they can have transparency and know what's going on. Um, I don't know how he balances having too many cooks in the kitchen or who can all chime in or if they just join, but they're silent. I I didn't get into that, but hearing things like that, being transparent, you know, and open. and, And I know he's putting in the effort people like that. I totally respect. And I think there's a lot of good companies like that around this, this area. And those are two of the individuals that just pop into mind real quick. That's great. And I want to talk about the family thing in a minute. Uh, so for you at Intrada, for instance, mm-hmm. were there any, are there any specifics you can think of, of like, man, it took us a few years to figure out we should really do this. And so we created this policy or this, uh, routine. And that's something that, that we feel like helped us institutionalize thinking because you had what, 1800 staff. Uh-huh. So this is, this is the way we institutionalized helping 1800 staff rather than just the handful of people I contact every day. Like in terms of culture? Sure. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, seven years passed before we actually even started talking about a culture and this is where it finally hit me. I met a lady named Ann Rhodes. She was the chief people officer of Southwest airlines. She was speaking at a conference. Uh, She was also co-founder of JetBlue airlines. Really, really impressive woman. She wrote a book called built on values. And at this conference, this was the national apartment association 
And, you know, I attended this on an annual basis. Um, after she spoke, I went right up to her and I just thought, this is amazing. This is exactly what we need because, you know, we had grown from, you know, a few founders to 30, 40 people by that time. Um, but our trajectory was about to go through the roof. We knew we were going to be bringing on so many more people. And she talked about in the small companies, culture is kind of easy. You all know each other and that exists. But as you grow, how do you maintain that culture? And I felt like we had a good one. So the book Built on Values, it was a blueprint of how to build a culture and then how to maintain it as you grow. Like when you interviewed people, what specific questions you actually ask that are tied to your values so that you can find out if they're a cultural fit beyond just being maybe the smartest person for that job. Because so we, we hired a lot of people that were just the smartest people, but they were awful. They were awful for our culture and just nobody wanted to be around them because they weren't cultural fits. No, nobody liked those people, but they, they may have been the most brilliant in their space. Um, so hiring based on culture became a focus for us. And I think that allowed us to maintain as we grew to, you know, bigger and bigger numbers. Um, you know, beyond that, we, we read several other books and tried to incorporate a lot of different things. We put a lot of different programs in place to make it more than just the kumbaya on the wall. So one of my divisions that I was over was our sales team. And Start With Why was another book that I read. So our sales guys, you know, we were competing against two of the companies from 1980 in the apartment management space. Old software and the things they were doing to our clients, um, you know, we, we didn't necessarily, you know, look up to. And so in meeting with our clients, I told them, you know, tell them why we do what we do. Start with why. Tell them who we are, how, we're, how we want to make their lives easier. That's our focus we want, to, we want to simplify life for you as a property manager. And then how? How are we going to do that? Then, you know, and this was like on slides. So this was the sales pitch. And then on the how, it listed all of our values. So we had five different values. One of them was be the Joneses. That was our value of innovation. Instead of we try to keep up with the Joneses, we, we are the Joneses. Everyone wants to keep up with us. You know, so we're very innovative. And as a client, you know, as, as you're... Um, you know, as your software provider, we're going to listen to your feedback. You're going to tell us what to build. That'll allow us to be the Joneses. You know, we had uh, be the real deal, our value of integrity. We had talk to me goose. That was our value of communication. We had a uh, business in the front party in the back. That was our value of fun. Um, be excellent to each other. It was our value of kind of caring and kindness. Um, so those were our five values. And we shared, this is how we will partner with you as a company. We'll be the real deal. We'll, we'll take responsibility when our software goes down. We'll, you know, make sure to, you know, do X, Y, and Z. I mean, so they heard this and it, at that point in time, they already knew the other competitors and that's where it's like, we're sold. We're sold on this if this is who you truly are, you know, and they could tell whoever was pitching it if they were really passionate and believable and it's like, yeah, this guy actually believes what he says. So we, we incorporated this into every division. And then, of course, in that sales pitch, then we finally got to our software and told them what we did. In training internally, our trainers incorporated our values with our software on, here's, here, when you're implementing this software, here's how you talk to me, Goose, with developers if something you know, needs to be changed here. Here's, here's how you be the real deal if your client needs retrained you know, or, or you, know, you need to redo implementation. So everybody was buying in and incorporating it kind of throughout the company. And, and this is what kind of evolved, but it definitely takes as, as you well know, the senior leaders 
have to be bought in or else it's just a big hypocritical kumbaya on the wall that not everybody lives. It almost goes in reverse. It's, if, it's if the worse. people at the top are not setting the example. It's right. worse than had you not even done it from the beginning. Okay. I'm so glad you went this place with sales. Uh-huh. I want to, I want to talk about this. So I'm thinking about culture. I'm thinking about sales. Um, one of the things I think about is, you know, the trap and I don't know a better way to describe it, but somebody referred to it as the trap of toxic numbers. When you've got this killer sales rep in the terms of they are posting as much as five other guys or 10 other guys on the sales team. But like everyone is demoralized because of what he gets away with and like the not showing up to things, you know, not, not living the other levels of accountability in a way that wasn't disclosed. Like people who don't have a thing, like I know some companies they have, Hey, if your sales numbers hit this, you get to skip the sales meeting. Mm -hmm. Right. But the people who don't have a policy like that, but the guy doesn't come anyways, but he doesn't get reprimanded. And the, and like the, the problem where the, the managers don't want to lose the numbers, but it's poisoning the whole rest of the team. Uh, have you seen that in other organizations? Did you ever experience that? <clears throat> you know, I, I really do feel like that culture early on was a really good culture. So the guys that we had, um, you know, th- th- there were a few that came and, and did whatever they wanted, but we didn't necessarily have, you know, hard set rules our sales team always kind of got away with whatever they wanted to. So, um, you know, I, I, but I think as we became more sophisticated as a company and, and we did have regular sales meetings and, you know, and instituted quotas and everything there at that point, um, you know, we had put our values in place. And so when we went to hire sales reps, we asked them those questions. And so our sales team, at least my experience was a very cohesive group and, so I didn't experience that. Okay. So I want to ask, specific. so what's an example of a question that you can ask to figure out, are you a prima donna? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, uh, I don't know, prima donnas a lot of times are the best sales reps. So I don't know if we wanted to necessarily screen out those guys. Um, and, and, you know, any of my sales but guys you, that are listening, okay, I, the, the you, self, know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the toxically self-centered, right? How, any any tricks for someone else who's trying to screen for that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for us, like we wanted to make sure that we didn't overpromise, and that was a big thing. So, I mean, I think a sales guy can turn into a prima donna if you're like, hey, you promised this, and we can't deliver that, and then there's a big argument that they want their commission. Um, so, to me, that was that was one of the first things I wanted to check on. Like, tell me, tell me what happened at your previous company when you sold something that your company didn't deliver on. I almost pitched it in a way to where it's like they're protected and then they can talk all the mess they want about their company and be like, oh, yeah, that's why I left or that's why I'm interviewing with you because they couldn't, they couldn't fulfill anything I sold, you know? And you'd start hearing that and you can kind of get a sense of, of who they were and what they're saying. But guys that would say, you know what? No, my last company, you know, everything that I sold was implemented. It was, you know, th- there were other issues that and other reasons why I left. But that wasn't one of them. You know, I mean, you can ask some of those questions to find out, like, you know, did, you know, did you come from a company where you just were one and done, where you just sold the company and then you never got, had to talk to them again? Um, those guys, I wanted to question a little bit more. The guys who had to upsell existing clients had to keep those clients happy and had to be honest and truthful with them. And what we were doing, we had about 24 different products. So these sales guys that we brought in, they had to be very client facing, but very honest. I mean, 
you couldn't almost be a prima donna in that instance. I mean, to a degree. And, and again, my guys definitely, they know that I called them prima donnas a lot of times, but um, they were good and honest and hardworking. They cared about their clients, and I think that was that was the biggest thing. But they definitely wanted their software to be implemented well. So, I mean, you know, or, or they wanted a development to make sure the product was was ready to go before they sold it. And so, and I would fight in their behalf in some of those instances, but you know, we'd make sure that we understood both sides of the story before just attacking. And, and I think hiring people that also can be patient and, and collaborative with your internal team so that you can work together as a company versus just having the sales department that's on their own doing their own thing. That's a tough balance. I, I, no matter what culture you have, making sure to get everybody involved. And and that's something we struggled with. Um, I, I don't know if anybody's figured that out, but but I definitely think, uh, you know, you put good people on all sides and, and there's a lot more collaboration. You know, um, especially for entrepreneurship, I, I really have a passion about sales because, you know, being a salesman, it's very prestigious. You know, it's almost as prestigious as being a garbage man, you know, right? Like we, there's such negative connotations with sales, right? Because so many of us have experienced repeatedly someone who's willing to manipulate us for their personal commissions. And so the whole sales industry gets painted with that brush and it's been happening for centuries. So it's, you know, many times it's well-deserved, right? Um, and yet in my experience, the, the most high-performing reps, the, you know, the ones that can grow account from a few thousand to a few million, these are individuals that you talked about patience and collaboration. These, in my experience, they're ones who can suspend that need for the commission and like almost become like an executive advisor to the point that the clients like invited them onto their side of the negotiating table to advise them. Do you, do you see that? Have you, do you share that opinion? Do you see it differently of the top reps versus manipulative no, ones? No, I, I think that's, that's it. I mean, any, and that's the thing we didn't necessarily, you know, we really wanted to find somebody who had to go back to the same client. And, and if that person had success, it was because of those reasons you just shared. They, they, they sacrifice their commission at times, knowing that it would pay off in the long run. So the guys that just wanted commission or, you know, we're only going li- to stay with us a year, hurry and get their paycheck and then use us as a stepping stone to get to the next company. You know, if, if a client or a potential client said, you know what, we're not going with you guys, we're going with another vendor. If that sales rep then went above that person's head to the CEO and said, you know, your marketing director is an idiot, like they're making the wrong decision. Um, you know, this is why X, Y, and Z, like you step on that person's toes, you create a bad name for yourself and those reps never succeeded. And, and I, I had a few of those own experiences that I had to learn from myself in doing that. So I'm speaking from experience. Anybody in sales has, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm glad I, I feel like I learned that early on. And so when we would teach our sales guys, look, you lose a deal, be very polite. And tell them, look, if there's anything we can do to help you in, in rolling out that product or in, in giving you any other advice or anything that we can do, let us know. Thank you for this opportunity to even bid on your, on your you know, on whatever proposal they send our way. Um, almost always the next year, you know, especially if you knew the competitor was going to bite the dust, they'd come running right back to you and they'd say, you were right. You know, and thanks for not saying I told you so, you know, or thanks for not you know, being a jerk. And I've always respected you. I mean, I think if you want a sustainable company, that's the attitude you have to have in sales. Well, 
You know, for me, if I was oversimplifying business, I feel like it's half have something awesome, half get people you figure out how to attract people to want it from you, and then you know have enough leadership that the human systems <laughs> don't don't crash there, right? Um, and whether it's the press, whether it's um, just people wanting to avoid sales in general, we have such an overemphasis on have something awesome. Oh, our mm-hmm. tech is better. Our, you know, we've disrupted this way. You know, like the, the buzzwords and whatever. Mm-hmm. There's, mm-hmm. So, right. there's so many of them on the, on the better mousetrap. And it, it does, to me, it feels like there is uh, a lot of trying to pretend the other half that we don't have to worry about the other half. Like, you know, the whole, like, if you build it, they will come. Right. If it's good enough, if it's good enough, everybody will find out about it rather than like paying the price to really learn those skill sets of how to communicate to someone that this will solve their problem. Like it's one thing for you to know it'll solve their problem. It's another thing for them to actually feel mm-hmm. like it'll solve their problem enough yeah, to part with yeah. some dollars and find out. Yeah. And uh, for me, I feel like a lot of successful entrepreneurs, it seems like um, they don't, they have had some sales background. There is some sort of sales, you know, they've been able to get over that stigma of a salesman because a CEO, a lot of times you're almost like salesman in chief. Um, it seems like you, you feel like you've benefited from your sales experience. Am I putting words in your mouth? Oh or? no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I think the human psychology that you learn just by being in sales, I think teaches you so much more than just selling a product. I mean, you, you know, I think for me, like what I learned, I learned to listen. I, I still do a lot of, you know, I, I catch myself what we call showing up and throwing up. But, you know, I, I think when I actually do a good job, I sit back and listen. And yeah, I mean, in, in this role now, same thing. I, I listen to anybody that, that I work with. I, I try to understand them. And then also, you know, show that I do really genuinely care. I think that's the, goes along with sales. Like, you want to listen to your client, you want them to know you genuinely care to solve their problems and you have a product that you're going to be able to do that with. So now I, I, th- I think no matter the position you're in, you're always selling yourself. Everybody's a salesman to a degree. Um, they may or may not know that. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a wonderful skill. Um, I, I never, for some reason, I never grew up thinking like sales was a bad career so I still don't feel that way. Like when, when you say that, like, yeah, people view salesmen as, as this and that. Like I, I hear that on occasion with like, uh, you know, maybe used car salesmen, you know, or, you know, I've, got, I've bought in a car before and I was just pushed around and I hated it. To me, those are the one and done salesmen. They don't care about you. The ones that do, and I'm sure there's great used car salesmen that want you to come back to their lot, you know, want you to buy their car and then a few years later come back. But yeah, the one and dones and, and you know, even in our industry, the with Homie, the National Association of Realtors said that their biggest danger that they have are their own agents. That there there's masses of untrained, unethical, and incompetent agents. It costs $156 here in the state of Utah to become an agent and about 70 hours of training. And so and, and then they can go in and represent you in selling the most valuable asset that you've ever purchased or advising you. And the, and there are many, many good ones. There's no question there's good ones, just like in, in every space, but the, the NAR just came out with this report, the danger report, and they said that's what's destroying their industry are these one-and-done sales reps. And the way that the real estate industry is, is created, I don't know if you've read Freakonomics, but it, it talks about the misaligned incentives of the real estate agent. And 
you know, with that misalignment and with the one and done type of, of approach, it's really, it's really difficult to know, you know, who's the good reps, who are the bad ones. And, and just for anybody who hasn't read the book, you're talking about the part of the research showing that sales reps were willing to, or real estate agents were willing to sell a house faster um, and take a lower price so they could get their commission rather than holding out for a client as long as they would have held out selling their own have home? It, yeah. I mean, if, if you're going to get commissions on a home and it's a difference of $10,000 that the buyer's coming in and saying lower at $10,000, for you, that's 300 bucks. For your client, that's $10,000. So yeah, you're like, ah, forget the 300 bucks. Yeah, just sell it right now. But for your client, that's $10,000 that they could have had. That might be all the equity they had left in their home after paying the 6% to the agents. And the research showed, even though everyone says, oh, no, of course, I'd hold out for the 10000 the research showed that many realtors don't. Yeah, and, and the research also showed that they kept their home on the market for a lot longer period of time than their own clients and sold it at a much higher price. So, I mean, and, and I don't think it's anything bad about the individual themselves, the realtor, the agent, but the industry, the way that it's created, the way that they pay commissions, like that, the whole process needs to change. They're allowing people just to become an agent with, with such little training, um, you know, w- without, you know, a degree in real estate or, or whatever it happens to be. I think that's what's caused the problem. You know, I have plenty of friends that are agents that are wonderful people, but that's the model they have to work within. And it's really tough. No, it's interesting. You know, um, the university just had Michael Lewis in to come talk. Yeah. And, um, I don't know if you saw his new movie, the big short. Yeah. But so, or no, no, I haven't seen the big short. Okay. Great book. Um, you know, movie with Brad Pitt and everybody in it. Right. And, uh, it's interesting. Super good friend of mine used to originate 250, 300 billion a year of, of mortgage backed securities for Lehman brothers. And, uh, so I, I kind of got a couple different angles on it. You get his book, you get the polarization in the movie, then you get my friend. Right. And, and somewhere in there is the truth. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, um, I actually feel like, you know, there's so many people from outside the game that haven't looked at it at all that blame evil Wall Streeters or something like this. And I thought Michael Lewis, who said exactly what you said, really nailed the problem of misaligned incentives. And uh, certainly Warren Buffett talks a lot about that for the finance industry. But it's interesting with the previous, you know, the previous information imbalance, when the realtors knew where the houses were that were for sale. Yeah. Now there's the internet. Everybody knows where the houses are that are for sale, right? But but the previous incentives existed (laughs) continue to exist, right? Yeah. With the size of those commission checks. Um, I thought it was interesting a few minutes ago when you were talking about listening. Uh, it sounds like you guys listen to your clients at, at Homey and that's why it's evolved the way it has. Um, I, I think about, you know, with the management consulting I was doing, how often we would ask people things like, um, who's some of the most, you know, who's one of the most influential people in your life? Who would you go to for advice? And so often they go to someone who will listen to them rather than someone who throws up and shows up. Yeah. Um, what does listening look like at homey? Do you guys have actively survey people? Do you call them? What do you do? Yeah. And as you're saying that, that that's my answer. So, um, I got to give credit to Mike Peregrina and Matt Thorne. They were the originators of this. This was Matt Thorne's idea. He was my outside legal counsel at property solutions for seven years. So I had a relationship with him. His really good friend was M- Mike Peregrina who worked for Mercado partners, a VC firm here in Salt Lake. They iterated on this idea and they surveyed the heck out of it. So by the time I joined, their thesis was spot on. 
you know, that they said, Hey, we haven't ever built a real estate software company before you have, and you, you know, did it well with property solutions. So they recruited me and then I recruited my, uh, old co-founder to be our CTO. But yeah, I mean, they were all about surveys and, and they, they, you know, used Qualtrics surveys. They heard back from people who have bought a home, who've sold a home, what their experiences were. And yeah, I mean, everything lined up, you know, they built, they built automation around every one of these processes so that you could guarantee that experience to be positive and actually better than what existed before. So an example of that, um, we heard back from a lot of people that, uh, said, you know, their realtor was just threw out a number to price their home and, and, you know, they got some comps in the area and then they guessed, but who knows if that realtor has been a 20 year, 30 year veteran as a realtor, or if they barely just became an agent 20 days, 20 days ago. Yeah. So it's like, do they really have this knowledge? You know, my mom sold her home in Colorado. She's another example. Um, the agent told her to list it at 420. Well, she looked at the comps and saw that nobody had the amount of land that she did and nobody had the square footage of her home. And so she's like, I, I at least want to do 10,000 more. I'm hoping to get 420 is my, is my offer price. So she raised it 10,000 and the agent said, well, if it doesn't work in a month, you know, you need to listen to me and lower it. And she said, okay, she got an offer in two weeks at that, at that price. Um, what we're doing is we're using the same data, the same comps that are available. They're now all online. As you mentioned, you know, realtors used to be able to bring all the information, but now there's the World Wide web. Um, we get an appraisal for our clients. They get an appraisal of their home upfront when they're going to sell it by a certified appraiser who went to school just to do that. Again, the difference between that and a realtor, it's actually a better experience pricing your home. Or, you know, another example, we, we heard from people um, that wanted to make an offer that night on a home, but their, their agent was juggling 30, 40 clients. And so they couldn't get a hold of them. An offer ended up being made from a different person, so they lost out on that home. With, with technology, we can do instantaneous tours of homes and instantaneous offers directly to the seller. You don't have to wait for somebody to make that for you. So, I mean, but don't, you, don't you feel like this is the future of business, though, is experience design? I mean, you keep talking about these things, and I, I, what I'm hearing is experience design. Man, what does it feel like to be a client of Homey? It feels yeah. like that's what you're focusing on. Maybe I'm, oh, yeah, I know I'm putting words in your mouth. No, but. no, no, that's it. I mean, the experience, we want it to be better. And 6% on a $500,000 home is thirty grand. On a $300,000 home, it's $18,000. You know, and that's... I mean, if you think about that money, like we charge $300, you know, I mean, we, we can do that for the seller, you know, and, and make it so much easier, better experience and such, it, it's such a lower cost. It's, it's incredible. And do I understand you can still list it on the MLS because you've got a real estate lawyer involved? Is that why, or is there, we have a real estate lawyer to help with all of the contracts. Mm. So he's a lawyer with a law degree. Again, better experience to have a lawyer working on your legal papers versus a, an agent working on your legal papers. You know, Matt Thorne in particular, he went to USC. He's, you know, one of the top law schools in the nation. So that experience is much better in, in that instance. But no, um, we just list on Zillow, mm. Trulia, KSL here locally. Um, and Zillow, love Zillow. Yeah, Zillow has a relationship with List Hub, which has a relationship with all the MLSs nationwide. So not every home from the MLS is listed on Zillow, um, but with our platform, we tell people, 
you know, you're going to get thousands of views listing your home with us. Um, and you know, so far we have had exactly that. You get thousands of views from Zillow, Trulia and KSL. And a lot of people even just drive around the neighborhood. They go on a drive with their spouse or whatever, looking at the area that they want to live in. They see a, a big old billboard in front of the house saying for sale, you know, and then they click take tour now through homie, you know, and they don't have to peek. So into they the get windows. a homie version. A yep. Home, it, okay. it, it says for sale by owner. There's so we don't represent the seller or the buyer. This is just, we're just a marketplace and we give them tools to do this on their own. Um, so yeah, the seller gets a for sale by owner sign, but it says homie.com at the bottom. They type in homie.com and, um, you know, that home immediately appears. They can click, yeah. take a tour and, and get in immediately. That's great. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's where, you know, and then on the, on the buy side, you know, we don't have all the homes that are listed on the MLS. But we tell people, buy any home on any website. Go to utahrealestate.com, which is where the MLS pushes a lot of their homes. Go buy any home. And through Homey, you know, we can help you make an offer. So you can buy any home on any website. And then you go to that seller and you tell them, I am representing myself. I don't have an agent. So the 3% you were going to pay my agent, I'd like you to knock that off the price of the home. So it's it's been awesome for our clients. Yeah. Um you know, you've talked about a couple of books here, and we'll, we'll put those in the show notes. Um, everybody can check out Johnny's page on ideationcollective.com. We'll have your bio and picture and links to Homie and stuff like that. But um, uh, have you read this book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, Ben Horowitz? I have not. From Andreessen Horowitz? Yeah, I, I know that I know uh, Ben Horowitz. Not not personally, but we've pitched to them. Oh, so, really? Yeah, I mean, we're constantly raising money, so we, we met with Andreessen Horowitz. So, fantastic mm-hmm. book in the way of just like the total hard truth about entrepreneurship. Like, no, doesn't pull any punches. I feel like I had a little bit of PTSD mm-hmm. from all my business failures <laughs> re-listening to it. But um, uh, obviously with Entrada hitting huge goals, homies on a pretty high trajectory. Mm-hmm. What about um, what about any of the, like, the crazy times of the, it almost all went, it almost all went down in the early years or any, were there any, uh, any like intense entrepreneur stories you could share? Yeah, I mean, I think for property solutions, I mentioned we're processing almost two billion dollars a month in rent, you know, each each month, and we had to partner with Visa, Mastercard, Discover, American Express, and the thing about it is, all of those guys had so many different rules that you had to follow, you know, Visa. So no one, you know, in in most transactions in grocery stores, you end up paying extra to use your credit card. Nobody knows it, but they just mark up the price of the food a few pennies or whatever to cover the cost of everybody using credit cards in the apartment space. When your rents a thousand dollars, there's not a rent. There's not an apartment owner, hardly anywhere that's willing to pay an extra 30 bucks just to let you use your credit card. So, um, we passed on what we called convenience fees. And, and that was a really tough thing to really understand and learn because American express had a no convenience fee policy. You couldn't pass on the cost of the credit card to the end consumer. You know, some competitors were doing it early on. Uh, Visa had rules that, that stated, or, or that were a little, it was a little gray area, but we had competitors that were passing on fees there as well. Uh, Visa said, you know, you could do it, but it had to be a fixed flat fee. Well, most competitors at the time were charging variable rates. So, you know, I mean, that was a big part of our business. So we kind of just followed suit and wanted to do whatever our competitors were doing. But yeah, Visa cracked down on everybody and yeah, I mean, that was a big like moment where it's like, uh-oh, you know, w- w- what's going on here? Um, and we ended up, you know, c- 
complying with Visa, complying with everybody, and they, they gave us time to build our software to, to fit their criteria. Um, but yeah, th- those were moments that were really scary. Um, there were other moments where new competitors came on the scene that had tons of funding, and we were like, uh-oh, you know, what's going on here? But honestly, I think just coming to work, just showing up day after day, ended up making the company. And everybody just kept coming, kept plugging along. I think, you know, the uh, the stress that you live, if it, you know, you're like, am I going to get shut down? Am I going to get shut down? Like, what I've tried to do is just not live things twice. You know, if it happens, it's going to happen. But there's no reason to just get stressed out about it and, and ha- make that your focus every single day. But yeah, I mean, that was, that was one experience at Property Solutions. Um, I thought that my world was going to come crashing down one time. I I emailed a client and and I meant to email one of my partners and it was a really laid back email. It even started with, I called my buddy homie, you know, and of course I'm working at a company called homie now, but you know, I was like, homie, Hey, this software's not working. You know, I'm leading this client on, you know, what should I tell them? And it went to the client, you know, and, and it was, it was one of the biggest companies. You're like, what, one of these undo buttons? Where, how do I get that email undo back? send didn't exist at the time. Yeah, it does now, luckily, because that saved, saved my butt several times. But this was one of the biggest clients in our industry. And so I thought, you know what, I just ruined it for our whole business. And I felt so bad. I immediately called the client. She didn't answer. I'm sure she didn't even check her email until later that night. But she responded just saying, I'll never do business with you, ever. And I'm going to use this as an example to everybody in my company to not trust salesmen, you know. So she she called me out on that, and over the years I just kept apologizing profusely. And finally, we were at a dinner together, and I just said, "Hey, we're both supposed to go to this dinner together. I understand if you don't want me to go, I don't want to make it awkward for you." So I said, "I'll bow out of this invitation if you don't want me there." And she was so kind. She was just like, "Oh no." It's been years. Let's let's get past this. And then we became really good friends. But, I mean, yeah. At first, I'm just like, one, you know, what was I even thinking to entertain the idea to lead a client on? You know, and then to, you know, collaborate with one of my partners. You know, should we keep leading this client on? I mean, it was it was terrible. I mean, this was when our within our first two years of business. And I'm so glad I learned that then. And I actually printed out that email and used that with my sales reps and told them, this is what not to do, you know? So, yeah, I mean, those were a couple examples, um, you know, that it's like, gulp, what's, what's going to happen yeah. from here? And, and with what we're doing at Homie, um, you know, Matt Thorne as our legal counsel, I mean, he's looked into the laws extensively to make sure we're doing everything above board, and we are. You know, we can have a lawyer do a legal contract. Um, we can have an appraiser price a home. But us as individuals, we can't do that. You know, there are rules in place. And so, um, you know, it's, it's tricky, you know, Tetris. Yeah. So, I mean, we want to make sure that we're doing everything above board, but that being said, we are putting people's livelihoods at risk that are selling and buying homes. And, um, you know, we feel that we're going to be creating so many more jobs here in the state of Utah, but at the same time, realtors, that business, I think will go away regardless if we do this or not. Um, but yeah, making sure that no change, change yeah, is tough. You know, that, that, that's it. There's a great Paul Pilzer book with, you know, sounds like a cheesy title, but a, a fascinating concept. It's called, um, something like why God wants you to be rich. Okay. And it's from an economist hmm. and he says, 
What my mother says is that being an economist is uh, what people who don't have enough personality to be an accountant become. <laughs> but uh, but he talks about uh, he runs these these classes at like kindergartens and stuff like this where he says you guys are all on a desert island I want you to organize an economy who's going to pick the apples who's going to do the fishing and he says at first they do communism and everybody it's fair for everybody and then they figure out hey if some guy fished every day he'd probably get better at it if somebody picked apples every day they'd probably get better at it and like for the same hour we could get more and they get they get into specialization and he goes into the idea of like well disruption creates temporary pain you're actually literally growing the environment. Like when we can, when we can all fly on airplanes without needing the extra uh, envelopes to have the plane tickets mailed to our homes anymore. He says the service still exists, the the benefit still exists, but the hundred million dollars worth of paper that the airline market used to use specifically for that doesn't get absorbed, and that hundred million dollars is now available for venture capital investing or something. You know, for purchasing something else another business can do. Absolutely. Um, it's tough. The human side of you know, I, I, I've been downsized, right? I worked at a Fortune 500 company that moved my division from L.A. to San Francisco, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of tears at the office, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and, and it's tough because, you know, short-term versus long-term, you know, individual benefit versus the group benefit of the country of, of change and progression, right? Um, how do you not discount, hey, this is temporarily going to be painful some people, for some people, and it's ultimately going to be a massive benefit for the whole country? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and I mean that's the way we're looking at it. Like it is, it is a smaller subset of people that it will be difficult for. But I mean, those transactions that we've had so far, they now have thirty thousand dollars in their pocket to either, you know, reinvest and put as their down payment their new home, or to finish a basement, pay their kids college, um, you know, donate to charity. I mean, they now have that discretionary income. Get out of debt. You know, America's in debt. You know, I mean, this this is pretty crazy. And in a down economy, I mean, if you think about it, people lose their job if they have to move. I know of so many people that are underwater in their homes, and then you tack on an additional six percent. You know, you're you're never going to be able to sell that thing. You know, and so in a bad economy, we see this as being you know much more liquid transaction where you don't have to go under um, in order to sell your home. So on either side, you know, and we do see this as a, as a win for the whole country. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your breaking in story. It doesn't sound like you were like born with a silver spoon in your mouth. It sounds like you were in college. You saw an opportunity. Tell us a little bit about the early days. What, what, how would you describe your, your breaking in story? Yeah, no, I mean, I grew up on a ranch and my dad's a cowboy. He left the ranch when I was, I don't know six moved to montana and then he he bought some land so i still continued to irrigate and and do hay up there and he taught me hard work and i knew that that was important and i hated everything i did you know i I always you know i was like (laughs) you know one of those kids like i'm not doing construction i'm not doing ranching and i know my dad he always still wants me to come back and i'm actually gravitating toward that like i (laughs) i I now kind of you gotta torture your kids yeah like of course i gotta torture my kids but yeah i got five boys so i got five ranch hands growing up um, we just had our, our six, our little baby girl, but, um, yeah. So with, w- w- with that and my mom, she, she, after my parents divorced, she, you know, got a degree online or, or worked late, late nights to get a degree at university of Phoenix. She was a secretary. She continued to move up the corporate ladder and then worked for Boeing, um, for a number of years and, and, you know, had different experiences, different managers. And, and I saw how she was treated in different ex- ex- Examples, and I think you know, w- women in business. I think have 
you know, it, it hasn't been fair over the years. And so I, I've seen that from her of how she was treated. And I think all of that kind of tied to who I am. Like I want to make sure to treat people well, but also that hard work ethic. So coming to college, answering your question, um, I, I didn't really have a set business I wanted to do. Um, but I definitely felt like I wanted to do my own thing. My dad had always done his own thing as a contractor, you know, as a cowboy previously. Um, my mom, you know, saying Boeing's a great place, come work with me. So the corporate America side was open, you know, there was an option there, but, um, yeah, my friends, uh, I had a, a good friend from Montana who was at BYU, uh, had this biz- business plan idea had me do some of the research form is is kind of my senior project at, at BYU Idaho. And did you see this as like a lifelong pursuit, or did you oh, see it no. as like some little project? Yeah. So I I just my friend was doing this you know business plan. It was part of my senior project. Uh, he and and another friend won the competition, and they're like Johnny, let's do this. Let's put this company together. And I thought, ah, yeah, why not? I don't have anything else going on. So never did I think I'd stay there for twelve years. Never did I think it would turn into what it did. Um, but I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Like what I learned there, I don't feel like I could have learned anywhere else. I ended up finally meeting uh, my wife a few years later in Orem. She's from Orem, Utah. Um, wonderful woman, wonderful family. She's actually become my business partner in life in general. And I talk to her about work nonstop. She gives me some of the best advice that I, I could ever imagine. So you asked like what specific advice? And I was trying to think like, I don't know what specific advice, but all my ideas have been her ideas. And I think that comes from that, you know, my mom being in business, you know, and I I knew she had so many good ideas and she added so much value to her company and her different teams. And my wife didn't get her degree. She's just naturally gifted in business. She really has a sound mind. And yeah, so, I mean, she helped me with property solutions. She came up with a lot of the things culturally that we did there. And none of the employees know that. Um, and here at Homey, you know, she she helped me decide to choose this company um, after Property Solutions and and allow me to be a, a, a entrepreneur once again. So, um, yeah, it, everything ended up working out. <laughs> Being an entrepreneur's spouse is like its own job. You're like they're like part time therapist, part time cheerleader, part time putting the brakes on. Oh man, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and that's the thing. I mean, I view my job. I, I have a I have two full-time jobs. You know, I'm, I'm here at homie all day and then I go home and I take over. I'm then dad 100%. And so she gets that break when I come and then she's asking me business questions. That's when she becomes my mentor. Um, as you know, I'm playing with the kids or doing dishes or whatever it is. So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. I want to talk about this. I, I love asking guests, especially, you know, people who are maybe wired for achievement, you know, ambitious types or, you know, and, business can be like an addiction when it, when it starts to work, it's almost like a high when it works better. Like it's so fun, Mm -hmm. right? Like I know video gamers, the the more they get at it, the more they get good at it, the more they want to do it. Business is the same. The more you get good at it, the more you want to do it kind of thing. And yet, um, like family doesn't get built in with defenses, right? Like Mm -hmm. we get those texts and those business emails day and night do you have any tactics for, for, uh, or, or recommendations for how to not like how to not get divorced on the way to being successful? Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, I think it's working with your wife early on and, and my wife called me out all the time. Like we'd be talking and then all of a sudden I'll just check my phone in the middle of our conversation. And she's like, is that what you would do to an investor? Would you do this to a client? 
<laughs> you know, would you just all of a sudden ignore them and start checking your phone? You bleep, 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 you know? And she's feisty, but I love that about her. And I think if more women called out their husbands like she did me, um, you know, and, and I wasn't, you know, I, I don't, I, I can't say that I'm just this humble guy and just listen to her right away. I mean, we, we, we had a few battles early Hold on. on. You guys argued in your marriage. It's <laughs> so weird, but you know what I mean? Like, I, I think she pushed that and she's like, put your dang phone down. And when you're home, you're home. And so, and she still does that with me. I mean, I'm, I'm still not, you know, I don't have it down. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm quite housebroken yet. Yeah. Either. But, but no, it, you know, she, I, I tell her, you know, I plan on being home at a set time every day. If I'm not, she wants me to make sure I let her know an hour before. If I don't give her proper time and she's cooking dinner, like how rude of me, you know, would I not let an investor or a client know that I'm going to be home at a certain time? You know, if I'm running late, I'm, I mean, I'll tell investors the second I'm running late. Why do you, do we, do, why do we not do that with our wives? Like that there's something that that's there that that's just what we do. But she keeps me honest. And I tell her, you know, there's some nights I come home, like after the kids go to bed, I need to work. Is that okay? You know, and she'll say, yeah, that's fine. You know, just make sure you put them down, brush your teeth, you know, put the pajamas on all that. So, you know, I, I think just communicating back and forth and that's, that's how it's worked for us. Going down a different vein for a minute. What, what's different about business when you're doing it at 2 million and then 20 million and then 200 million, and then 2 billion. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it, you're doing yourself at the beginning. And I think later on, as you grow the company, you have to trust others. You have to hire people that are smarter than you to then take over. And I mean, by the time I left property solutions, I, I should have been doing nothing. I, you know, I, I still probably put, you know, you know, people probably wanted me out of their jobs more so than what, what I was doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the last guy that I put in a position, he had so much more experience than me in sales. He had taken a company to over 200 million in recurring revenue. And, and that's why I hired him. But I mean, in that instance, it's like, there's not much I can add. I just get out of the way. So I think as it grows, I think you need to be a facilitator to help your people do their work, get out of their way, let them shine, let them do what they're good at. And you try not to get in their way. And I think there were, there, were, I'm sure every one of them would say I got in their way, but, um, that was at least what, what I tried to do and, and give them whatever resources they needed to succeed. Yeah. Um, another question for you. I, I had a, a mentor early on uh, who had become really financially successful. And he says, you know, all sorts of relatives come out of the woodwork and everybody needs a loan. And all of a sudden, social relationships change sometimes. And one of the big pieces of advice he gave me is he said um, that he and his wife never lent money to anyone. Mm-hmm. He said when people came to them that they said, hey, we don't lend, but we do give money. Mm-hmm. So t- tell, us what you've, tell us what you need. And we'll think about it and we'll get back to you and we'll either give you the money or not, but it won't be a loan. And he says, I have paid people's mortgage sometimes. Um, but for him, what happened is anytime he lent people money, he just, they, they never paid him back and then they felt guilty. So they never associated with him anymore. And he just lost friends who owed him yeah, money. Yeah. Um, any advice as you've reached some higher levels of success of like having to adjust to maybe people see you as a walking dollar sign of, Hey, won't you invest in my thing? Or won't you buy my thing? Or I I don't think people see me that way, but, but I do have an answer to your question. And and I have been asked for money. Um, my school president at BYU Idaho was president Bednar. And he gave a talk about, uh, service and, and donating and helping people in need. But one part in there really stood out to me. And it was at times, 
you actually might be hindering that person. You might be taking away an opportunity that they have to learn and grow by you bailing them out of a situation or a trial that was meant for them. And it was, you know, a, a minute part of his 40 minute talk. And I went and said this to him afterwards. I'm like, can you elaborate more? And he said, I don't need to. He said, the part that you heard touched you. That's what you were supposed to take away from this. And he said, and this will help you the rest of your life. So I shared that immediately when I got married with my wife and we didn't have much when I got married, but what, what we've continued to study and learn is, you know, helping people however we can when, when it's appropriate. And I think if you ever loan money, I think you should just always expect not to get it back. You know, if you're going to loan money, I think the best thing to do is just know it's never going to be returned, but make that decision. If you give the money, just know, yeah, I'm fine if it's never returned and internally. I mean, if the person says, oh, I'll pay you back, I'll do whatever, you know, that can be on them and, and you can let them work on that. But inside, I think it's best just to say, you know, I'm never going to get this back. And, and so we've done that, but there's also been times where we've said, um, and, and, you know, I have money and it's not that I can't give this money to you. It's that I shouldn't give this money to you. And so this, that's been very hard in those conversations <laughs> to have with any friends or family members. But to me, like th there's been, those people have come back and said, thank you. Thank you for not helping me in this instance, because you ended up helping me by not just bailing me out. And those are, those are the worst conversations to have, honestly, you know, they're the hardest, but if, if that's the way you feel that, you know, you look at a situation and you want to help that people, sometimes the best help you can do is to, is to just let them figure it out on their own and grow. This, this topic of doing the hard thing that you think is the right thing. Do you have any thoughts about, um, ad advice or, or, um, thoughts in general about when you come up with the choice of like what I feel like doing, what I think I actually should do, uh, any ways that you get yourself to do what you really think you ought to do instead of what would be easier or what you feel like doing? I don't know if there's any advice. I feel like you almost just got to live through that. You know, if, if, if you know what you should do, but you go with, uh, you know, what you want to do, I mean, it's going to come back to bite you and then you'll learn to follow what you should do next time. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I saw sure. No, that's fine. Um, well, um, speaking about trying to do, do good things in the world, we were talking a little bit earlier about the, the charity, our family started child rescue. Mm -hmm. Um, what advice would you have for us is we're, you know, we're trying to get more people involved in helping, um, rescue kids from child sex traffickers, both here at home and, uh, internationally, any advice for, you know, if you were us or if you were advising us on how to get the word out more that, that these kids are being exploited? Yeah. Yeah. We, we talked a little bit about this and I, I do think there's megaphones that exist out there. I mean, here in Utah in particular, you got this group of mommy bloggers who have thousands and thousands of followers. I'm sure this is a topic that's near and dear to their heart. Um, there's also other really great key individuals that are very well known, well networked, uh, wealthy individuals as well. You know, I, I think there's a lot of charity going on here in the state of Utah. And I think a lot of people, um, would be happy to get interested in this. And so I think it's just networking, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people I know, you know, and, and, you know, what do you want me to share? What do you, do you want me to post something on social media? Cause a lot of those people I know are friends of mine on Facebook, you know, or, or Twitter, you know, th those are, those are the things that, um, I would, I would suggest just, 
using megaphones that already exist and continuing to network and, and get the word out. That's great. Um, we've listed some great books so far, but any other just uh, books that have really made a difference for you that you think achievers or innovators uh, should be reading these days? Yeah, I really am a believer that, that having a good culture, you can have an increase of sales. There's fewer people that are going to call in sick. You know, you're going to have uh, fewer accidents. And these are all statistics that have been proven based on good cultures. Um, you're you're going to have, you know, higher profits. I mean, wonderful organizations have compiled this data. And I've gotten a lot of it from um, Zappos. They have a, a group of happy ambassadors. And I follow them on Facebook. And they publish a lot of these statistics to help you understand there's actually data backing good cultures. So Zappos' book, uh, Delivering Happiness, is really good. It's more their story than a blueprint of, of how to do what they're doing. Built on Values is that blueprint of, of how to do what, what Zappos is doing or what other good companies have done. Uh, the Advantage is another book that talks about having a healthy balance of EQ and IQ. Who wrote, um, who wrote that one? Uh, I can't I can't. We'll remember. look it up. We'll put the Amazon link on your page. Yeah, really, really good book. It, it, it talks about that the organizational health of a company. Um, and, and they, they've surveyed hundreds, thousands of companies, uh, crucial conversations. I'm a huge fan of that. Controlling your emotions, stating facts. Um, early on, I got pretty emotional, you know, and, and would, you know, just blurt out things instead of being calm and stating facts. Um, yeah, start with why love that book. Very inspirational book. I think, Everybody should pattern their um, organizations after you know a why and, and go from there, and then how, and then what. Uh, Simon Sinek is the author of that that book. Um, um, when you uh, look at how you grew up, um, talked about the value of hard work. Uh, any examples for you, either early in career or early in life, that you feel like really set the example for how to treat others that that you've kind of looked up to since then. Um, I, I think it was more kind of what not to do. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I mentioned my dad taught me all about hard work. He is the hardest worker I know. And he only has to sleep like three or four hours a night and then he's up and he wants me up working. You know what I mean? That that's how it was growing up. So it was awful, you know, in that regard, although my dad and I, like, I love him. He, we have such a great relationship. We always have had that. I've always looked up to him. Um, but he didn't have that interpersonal communication side of him. And so he was always kind of a one-man show in construction, and the people that he worked with ended up being my coworkers. And I would hear him yell at them or yell at me, and and that was tough, you know. And I would try to balance that, and I'm like, you know, that's you know, you just didn't understand what my dad was trying to say, and he didn't mean to yell at you. That's just how he is. He and my dad would just love his people. I mean, he really did care about them, but he didn't communicate that well. He, he actually communicated the opposite in a lot of situations. And then my mom. As I mentioned, you know, she would come home and just tell me the horror stories of how she was treated. And I felt so bad for her. And I was, was like, man, I wish they saw your value. And I'd stay up late night in high school, you know, just sitting by her bed, talking to her, hearing about her stories at work. And, and I think all of that had an impact on me. And, and I think people that have worked with me know that I've always cared about them. And I, you know, even people that I've had to fire. I'm still really good friends with most of them. You know, there, there's been a few instances where I didn't do that great of a job or, um, you know, made some mistakes, but, but yeah, it's, I think that's, those are the people that have kind of been my influencers in life. Yeah. Well, uh, before we close up here, 
When you think about the advice most people give, you know, hey, what's the best advice you ever had or what advice would you have for others? You know, the, the, like, the knee-jerk answers are things like, well, work hard and, and be true to yourself um, that are not always as tangible of like, well, I, I didn't think I was slacking off, you know. Um, beyond that kind of stuff, are there, are there any unaverage advice that you received that stuck out to you or, or things that you really adhere to that you think um, not everybody is just using it as their cliche answer? Yeah, and, and I've, I've alluded to this kind of throughout this, you know, our, our discussion here, but when I left Property Solutions, I didn't have another job lined up, and I hadn't sold any shares, so I didn't have anything, and I was leaving a great income, uh, and so it, it was a little nerve-wracking for me. But what I found is the second I left, all of my friends reached out to me, former employees that were my friends, people that I let go, that I had to part ways with, reached out to me. Um, and what I, what I realized at that moment that your relationships have so much more of an impact than you'll ever know. And for me, like that, that blew my mind that I, I had people making introductions for me, talking me up before I even got there. I, I didn't even have to put a resume together. You know, people were just saying, Oh, you know, this is who he is. He's, he has integrity. He's honest. He's hardworking. And, you know, and somebody, you know, said, Hey, I'll introduce you to these five five firms. They're all looking for executives to possibly run the company or just to assist, you know, in some executive fashion, you know. And I'd say, well, don't you even want to get to know me, you know? And he's like, oh no, no I've interviewed several other people that used to work with you, and like that blew my mind. And and so, yeah, I mean, throughout life, like it's all about relationships. And so, yeah, hard work's great. All, all, all of that's great. But I mean, I really think treating others fairly, caring about other people, being nice, being friends with everybody and genuinely being a friend, not just, you know, surface. being acquaintances or surface. Yeah. And then talking bad about them or whatever, but yeah, like really, you know, caring about people, being patient with people, realizing that you don't know where they came from, you know, not judging right away and just being like, Hey, yeah, they might've had some baggage from childhood, but you know, he's a good guy in general, you know, that kind of stuff. I think, it helps and it and all of that came back and I keep I still tell my wife like how crazy that is. Like Mike and Matt, they approached me on this and I really hadn't had much interaction with either of them. And and you know, they stayed on me until I, I came on board and I really appreciate them for doing that. And I think we're now taking on the biggest industry and have the perfect idea on how to make it happen. I think that's a great place to stop. Thanks so much for your time today. Hey, thank you. It's been been fun. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.